Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, so much of what we eat, drink, or smoke contains nature's toxins, often made by plants to defend against insects or pathogens. The caffeine in coffee, capsaicin in red pepper flakes, cannabinoids in marijuana buds. And while these chemical defenses evolved long before humans entered the picture, we've come to use and abuse them, says evolutionary biologist Noah Whiteman to greet our days, titillate our tongues, mend our hearts, bend our minds. We'll talk with Whiteman about nature's vast array of poisons and how they've shaped our world and us. Pick your poison and tell us why after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. For coffee lovers like me, it's hard to think of a substance that's more tailor-made for human consumption. It's energizing, a mood lifter, a great way to start the day. But I learned from Noah Whiteman's book, Most Delicious Poison, that the caffeine in the coffee plant evolved as an insecticide, not as anything for our sakes. Whiteman is an evolutionary biologist at UC Berkeley who is fascinated by the toxins plants and fungi have long produced for their own protection and how we humans tapped into and came to rely on them for everything from spicing up our food to easing our physical and emotional pain. Noel Whiteman joins me now. Thanks so much for joining us, Professor. It's wonderful to be with you, Mina. Thank you for having me. Yeah, glad to have you on. And tell us first a little more about how plants evolved to produce caffeine. So plants have evolved to produce caffeine a number of times independently of each other. So, for example, tea is in a different lineage than the coffee plant. And uh, in both cases, they produce caffeine, it seems, to defend themselves primarily against insects that would like to eat them. (laughs) And I understand that plants also produce caffeine sometimes to lure certain insects? That seems to be the case in citrus, for example. In the nectar, uh, citrus plants can secrete caffeine. And scientists have shown that the caffeine seems to uh, sort of increase the ability of bees to remember where that plant was and to recruit their sisters, in the case of, of honeybees and bumblebees, to those flowers. And so it reinforces this kind of reward. And sometimes that's to the detriment of the bees, but to the benefit of the plant. 
So in both cases, I guess you can think of it as they're targeting the animal mind, even if it's a tiny mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so they're doing this essentially to create an evolutionary advantage. You have this wonderful line in your book where you say, many substances consumed today by humans are simply unintended consequences of evolutionary battles between plants and the insects that eat them. So talk a little bit about that. Sure. You know, and in some cases, these molecules exist in these plants and other organisms, and they function as signaling molecules. So they're not initially defenses necessarily. They may serve a different role in the functioning, the basic functioning of a plant. And then evolution co-ops them. And sort of, you know, this is often how adaptation works. It builds on things that were there before. And um, random mutation often through gene duplication, creates sometimes new parts of metabolic pathways. And then evolution sort of tests these out. The environment tests them out. And those that survive better, you know, pass on those genes to their progeny, their babies. And then in the case of these chemical defenses, um, they turn into those, right, through natural selection. Yeah, and as you say, we as humans then tap into them. So talk about how caffeine works in our bodies. Even though it's toxic to insects, a lot of us, me in particular, find it very pleasurable to consume. Yeah, so caffeine seems to work by blocking the adenosine receptors from binding to adenosine. And normally we fall asleep when adenosine binds to those receptors and caffeine blocks the ability of adenosine to do that. And so that keeps us up. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, too much, right? Too long. I just read uh, someone was tweeting today about how they'd had too much coffee and it kept them up too late. So like all of these things, it's a knife's edge. And we, I guess, should remember that it did not evolve for our sake. Sure. But before we talk about how bad it is, tell me why it's good. Because I know that it's also your toxin of choice, right? It what do is. you love about it? Well, I had two cups this morning. I'll have a cappuccino <laughs> later today. And in the book, I talk about why I prefer filtered coffee. Um, but back to caffeine. So the one of the reasons that I love it so much is that it's, it increases my alertness. It gets me going like most people in the morning, whether it's from coffee, tea, yerba mate for my Argentines and Uruguayan friends. <laughs> um, cola nut uh, also produces caffeine. Um, even plants, you know, yerba mate is in the holly family. And um, that's, that's another instance of the independent origin. So for plants, it's a very popular thing to evolve. Um, but for us, another reason it seems to, to benefit us is that in these very large um, studies, they're epidemiological studies that are sort of cross-sectional. So an important caveat is that there could be other factors that are driving the pattern, not necessarily caffeine, right? There might be variables associated with people who drink caffeine that might be driving this. That's just the caveat. But it looks like depression risk is reduced by, you know, upwards of 25% or more in people who drink caffeine in these large studies of healthcare professionals, nurses and doctors. And then suicide risk is reduced by 50% in, uh, you know, in a kind of a per cup basis. There's a dose, you know, effect mm -hmm. of a protection effect against suicide. So, and it sort of comports with my own impression of myself when I don't drink caffeine, <laughs> where I'm, you know, a little grouchy. So the depression side, you know, for sure for me, you know, you could see how it, it could be a buffer. It's possible that it is. Um, and it also, you know, may increase some of our cognitive performance a little bit. Um, I like to believe that. Yes, me too. <laughs> and gives us a ton of antioxidants, apparently. Right. So the other chemicals that are in coffee, let's say just in particular, 
there are polyphenols, um, when, and one in particular called chlorogenic acid. You know, that's probably the most abundant um, antioxidant in our diet, just in terms of the actual amount. And laboratory studies suggest that that provides a protective effect in the endothelial lining of blood vessels. So it, it sort of is involved in anti-inflammation. Um, and I talk about this in the book, that same thing in the eucalyptus forest above the Berkeley campus is produced by eucalyptus trees. And that seems to prevent other trees from growing under it. So it's what we call an allelopathic uh, chemical. So it has these two-sided, you know, sort of nature, like a lot of things that yeah. I talk about in the book. It is a toxin, so it does have the capacity to harm us. Why did you mention that you like to make sure that you drink your coffee filtered? Right. So that this is the thing I learned the most while I was writing the book, I would say, or, the, or I would say the thing that most impacted me in my sort of daily life, because I loved using a French press. And before I continue, I should say, I'm not a physician. I'm not a nutritionist. This is just personal <laughs> sort of information. <laughs> and the French press was nice because it's so full-bodied. You know, uh, when I would brew that, it was sort of a nice ritual. It wasn't just an auto drip where I'm, you know, hitting the button. But it turns out that the, the two chemicals in the human diet that are the most potent at inducing our livers to make LDL cholesterol which can be considered, in, in quotes, the bad cholesterol, although there's caveats there too. These two chemicals, one is called cafestol, the other is called caweol, and those two chemicals absolutely induce the body to produce LDL, and it will raise your cholesterol levels. These have been shown in clinical trials. And it was such a problem in Scandinavia, in Finland in particular, where they, drink boil, they drank boiled coffee, which is much like a French press. There's no filter. There's no real filter. Yeah. And um, there were, you know, epidemiological studies showing that these higher LDL levels were causing potentially associations with in, uh, higher cardiovascular event risk. So for me, it turns out that nutritionists have done studies showing that if you use a filter. Like a paper filter or a metal yeah, mesh filter. Yeah, that's right. And the grounds themselves also act as a filter to to prevent these small particles to which these um, diterpene alcohols bind from getting through. So any paper filter will work. Even a percolator, there's a filter cake of the grounds that forms, and there's like a gentle, you know, spraying of the water on top of them. That's how percolators work. That also prevents them from getting into the brew. Even the gold mesh filter works because there's a coffee cake um, especially in an auto drip where that's not disturbed. Pour over, I would use a paper filter, wow. not a gold mesh. So there's all these little nuances that I talk about in the book. Yeah, about, so, yeah. so filter your coffee if you don't want to be be poisoned. Jeez. And then there are so many other potent poisons in our kitchen, like in our spice drawer. Nutmeg, for example. What does nutmeg, what can it do to us? Well, nutmeg, like coffee, has a lot of, of chemicals in it, um, that plants don't need to survive, right, just to sort of grow. But why would they produce something like meristocin, which is the thing in part that gives it that amazing flavor? And scientists have shown that meristocin is, is definitely has antimicrobial and anti-herbivore effects on little things that are trying to attack it. And meristocin in the body, there's a little, you know, it's a little unclear um, what it breaks down into, but it may break down into a compound that's kind of similar to ecstasy and, you know, but have to be eaten in very large amounts. And it's very toxic if people do this. And so 
you know, it's dangerous to do that. Um, but yes, uh, it's it's broken down into potentially this psychedelic kind of molecule or right. psychoactive molecule. And that black pepper too, sort of it can be the basis or it mimics the basis of fentanyl. Yeah, so a lot of alkaloids have this piperidine ring um, that's the basis of the, the synthetic um, opioids. And uh, so that chemical's also been co-opted many times by nature and then by us, you know, sort of by studying these natural alkaloids as a way to create an opioid that has a s- sort of easier way of getting through the blood-brain barrier, for example, and that sort of thing. The other thing that... I was struck by was that the juice from citrus can literally burn your skin. Uh, can you just describe how this happens? Yes. So there was one story I was reading where someone was making margaritas and they had uh, cut, you know, I don't know how many limes and they went out in the sun afterwards and they got terrible burns. And so there are chemicals that, um, again, like caffeine, plants in different families make from citrus to celery. And the, the chemicals are called furanocoumarins, and when they get on your skin in the presence of UV light, they cause uh, cells to die through DNA damage. And so uh, it's uh, a, a problem if you're out in the sun, but it's not a problem if you're not. We're learning about all the poisons and toxins that we love populate our world and maybe should know a little more about, which is what uh, Noah Whiteman is hoping you will do in his book, Most Delicious Poison, the story of nature's toxins from spices to vices, which actually also looks at their evolution and through that process helps us understand how powerful they really are. You, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What do you eat, drink, inhale, and wonder about its toxic effects? Have you ever been poisoned by nature? What happened? What questions do you have for Noah about nature's poisons and toxins? 866-733-6786 is the number to call. The email address, forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, our digital community on Discord, or other social channels at KQED Forum. The listener asks, so should we not be eating chocolate-covered coffee beans? (laughs) I wouldn't necessarily give that up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Just filter your coffee, people. All right. We'll have more after the break. I mean it, Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about nature's toxins this hour with Noah Whiteman, evolutionary biologist and professor of integrative biology and molecular and cell biology at UC Berkeley, also director of the Essig Museum of Entomology, and author of Most Delicious Poison, the story of nature's toxins from spices to vices. And you, our listeners, are invited to share the things that you eat, drink, consume, and wonder about its toxic effects and want to ask Noah Whiteman about them, experiences you've had where you've actually Actually been poisoned by nature, something that you thought was relatively innocuous, questions you have about the evolutionary purpose of a lot of the kinds of things that we consume, like caffeine and capsaicin. Uh, Whiteman writes, many substances consumed today by humans are simply unintended consequences of evolutionary battles between plants and the insects that eat them. Defensive toxins that they created to survive and thrive. 866-733-6786, the number. Email address forum at kqed.org. Find us at KQED Forum on our social channels. Noah, do you think we may underestimate the potency or danger of these toxins because it comes from nature? Because it's natural? Yes, that's such a great question. You know, one of the things that became clear as I was writing the book was that the appeal to nature fallacy is pervasive uh, in our culture, in the media, in the wellness industry. Um, And I guess the idea is, A, that if it's natural, it's good for us, right? Um, And the other, the corollary is, if it's not natural, it's bad for us. So, and I think both are fallacies, um, uh, fundamentally. And so, and in the book, I think I focus on these chemicals that primarily plants and things like fungi and even some animals make, to defend themselves that we tap into, but some of those are really toxic things uh, that uh, even in minute quantities would be very problematic if we consume them in the wrong way. But one of them, like the the agent that's used to make Botox, comes from a bacterium. It's one of the most um, dangerous toxins. If it was a bacterium that infected you and produced that chemical in the wrong place, it would be very dangerous. But this thing can be a medicine, too, in the right context. So that, that's my kind of point. I think you're right that we underestimate um, this natural, is efficacious, is good for us. Well, let me go to caller Karen in San Diego. Karen, you're on. Oh, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, my, na- my question is about licorice. Um, I've just noticed that if I have a drink tea that has licorice in it or is a licorice tea, I end up getting really dizzy. And I don't know if it's me, if I just have some kind of allergic reaction to it, or if there is something chemical in licorice that affects humans. That is a great question. And yes, there are chemicals in licorice that can have these um, effects on your nervous system. So I think you're in good company, I would say. And if it makes you dizzy, then I wouldn't eat the black licorice, but maybe you could eat the red licorice that <laughs> doesn't have those chemicals. But yes, I, I would be careful if I were you, if you're sensitive to it. No, I want to ask you about the genesis of this book, which lies in part in work you were doing with the monarch butterfly and in part in your father's struggle with alcohol dependency. C- could you talk about what you learned about these two things and, and how they're connected for you? Sure. They were never really connected until he died. And when that happened, it just caused me to step back and just look at my life and the choices in my career that I've made, the things that I've chosen to study, which at that time uh, was pretty focused on understanding how the monarch butterfly resists 
poisons that the milkweed plant makes called cardiac glycosides that are in the milky sap that uh, to us are very toxic, although they can also be used as medicines. And uh, the monarch butterflies as caterpillars pull those into their body as they're munching the leaves and use that throughout their lives, including as adult butterflies, as defenses against birds. So these are like these chemical shields they steal from plants. And they're doing that to keep their enemies at bay. And then I, it sort of dawned on me that my father was using alcohol, ethanol, in kind of the same way to keep his own enemies at bay, whether they were psychological or physical, in his case, in, in both instances. And that's where I suddenly realized, like, wow, you know, my, my whole life has been kind of revolving around my interest in these things or my worry, concern, <laughs> you know, that people in my life were, were sort of overusing them to protect themselves. And at some point, you know, even the monarchs uh, can't handle the highest levels of these toxins. So, and that's also true for us. Yeah, it makes me wonder how good we are as humans at managing these poisons because you describe how biologically we're actually pretty good. We are. You know, we're big, we have big livers, and this really helps us in general detoxify a lot of the things that come into our diet. And so I would say, yes, there's a reason that every culture that is known and probably unknown uses chemicals from plants, fungi, animals um, at doses that would be problematic for smaller creatures potentially that aren't as efficient at detoxifying these things. And so we're kind of specially adapted in this way, I would say, as omnivores. Um, you know, there's a chapter in the book I call The Herbivore's Dilemma. <laughs> and that is a sort of asking, you know, why are there, why are there differences in in cats and humans in our sort of ability to handle these toxins because cats are really sensitive to many of the things that we would not be, you know, uh, find toxic, like onions, for example, dogs too. And they're carnivores, derived from carnivores in the case of dogs, and our immediate ancestors were herbivores. So I believe that, you know, this evidence suggests that we have this propensity to deal with these things because of our evolutionary history. Yeah, we can digest them well. But then on the human nature side of it, are we good at managing poisons? Well, that is a whole other question. And I think that uh, yes and no is what I would say. I think the opioid crisis that, uh, you know, one of the most recent waves that is swept through the United States tells us that uh, you know, no, we're not. Um, the number of people with alcohol use disorder, which is the sort of modern term for alcoholism, that uh, around the world, um, no, we're not. The number of people who die of tobacco-related illness, that is due to nicotine addiction, uh, and the carcinogens that uh, occur as a result of the combustion of, of tobacco leaves that are cured, produces these nitrosamines. That is killing more people than probably most anything else on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. And when I say human nature, I don't mean it in terms of will because the effects on the brain and so on are still being studied, but it just shows what parts of us are sensitive in certain ways and, and you know, still need, need deep study. Jerome sort of along these lines writes, why is alcohol so enticing for us humans and so abundant in nature? Well, that's a great question. And, you know, one of the ways I started thinking about it um, was... The yeast that we use to ferment alcohol, 
has is really good at turning sugar into ethanol. And, you know, it can do that um, at such high levels because of this thing called the Crabtree effect, which is the name of the person who discovered it. And uh, humans have pushed the envelope of yeast, have selected for varieties that produce more and more ethanol. But the yeast, we have to ask, why are the yeast making ethanol in the first place? And they're making it in such large quantities, it seems, as this poisonous preserve that prevents competitor microbes from colonizing rotten fruit, perhaps. And then the amazing thing about ethanol, it's kind of unique in this way. The yeast can tap into that later as an energy source. So it, it's both toxic to other organisms, even to them above 20%. Um, and that's actually a similar amount to us where it would start becoming toxic. And so, you know, we have, you could think of it this way, have sort of been co-evolving with these yeasts since the advent of human fermentation, you know, in the last 10,000 years mm. or so. And for us, um, some of the evidence suggests that, you know, people began fermenting in larger quantities uh, presumably to help keep water safe. That's one possibility, right? Because of the um, ethanol preventing competitor microbes from invading, that helps us if there are pathogens that are also in the water, right? So it may have started off that way. And then it's also an energy source for us, um, the ethanol. And we are, some of us, are well adapted to handle ethanol and others less so. Um, as I talk about in the book. So there's some genetic differences that predispose people to be efficient or more or less efficient at detoxifying um, the byproducts of ethanol. And we're talking about the toxins that populate our world with Noah Whiteman of UC Berkeley, an evolutionary biologist there who's written a book called Most Delicious Poison. We're learning about these toxins' evolutionary origins, how they intersect with our lives and have shaped life on the planet. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation. Let me go to Alex in Fremont. Alex, you're on. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I love this topic and um, went to China to study ethnobotany, mm-hmm. and I, which is the cultural connections of plants and people. Um, and maybe this, this interest was catalyzed as an eighth grader. Uh, a friend of mine had been reading um, the autobiography of Malcolm X, and in that, Malcolm X talks about um, ingesting nutmeg in prison. Um, as a psychoactive, and we attempted this and choked down one of those little spice containers of nutmeg, the most vile uh, taste you could ever imagine, but went down with a great deal of orange juice and I think some Krispy Kreme donuts. And um, and nothing happened until later that day I was at my my weekly cello lesson, and I noticed that the the notes on the on the sheet music were kind of dancing across the page in, in a way that I was not expecting. Uh, so this is my first experience with plants and the sort of psychoactive nature um, that they can have. Um, I was very open with my cello teacher at that moment, and um, he he thought it was pretty funny. And I think it had you know many experiences similar himself, but. Um, yeah, that's my, my oh wow, with nutmeg. Alex, I am so glad you're okay. And also, as someone who plays the cello, have this amazing visual of you at your cello lesson. I'm certain I was um, I was doing a song out of the real book, <laughs> if you know what that is. Um, well, thanks for so sharing. It was, a, it was a funky time. <laughs> I saw your mouth open, Noah, when Alex was sharing that story. <laughs> what do you think? Well, Alex did the thing I said nobody should do, <laughs> which is use nutmeg as a, an attempt to, as a psychoactive. And one of the reasons is people can harm themselves. Their livers can be harmed. Um, 
And there are cases of actually people misusing nutmeg. There's there's a few cases in the medical literature of um, mental illness, uh, temporary mental illness uh, forming, uh, manifesting in a person in particular. I talk about this in the book who um, sort of was overusing it. Yeah. Mm. And once they stopped using it, the symptoms went away of their mental mental illness. I want to ask you about another area where you seem to be striking a little bit of a cautionary note, though you do see a lot of promise in it, and that is in psychedelics, right? You write, I'm convinced that psychedelics, this was in a, in a piece, I'm convinced that psychedelics hold great potential as therapies for a wide range of mental health disorders. Maybe they could have even helped my father. But again, it, there does seem to be a bit of a note there of being aware of potential dangers. So tell me what you do think about the promise that psychedelics hold and what you want people to understand about where we are with them right now. Sure, that's such a great topic and question. Um, so my take on it is uh, to first talk about the clinical trials that have been conducted that are, you know, they're ever increasing number of them, but they are small. And, you know, there were clinical trials um, decades ago that were stopped as a, as a result of this sort of uh, taboo nature that quickly descended upon from the counterculture sort of um, anti-counterculture movement. Um, And so people were interested in using psychedelics as potential therapies for things like alcohol use disorder, for example, and depression. Um, And now there's been a rebirth of those studies, and they're very promising for a variety of, of mental illnesses from depression to OCD to PTSD to alcohol use disorder and other um, drug use disorders. And, you know, I'm convinced by those studies and their promise. Some of them are gold standard, double-blind, placebo-controlled, which is what we really need in order to assess the effects of a particular uh, molecule on some aspect of our behavior physiology. And so I'm very convinced by the promise of them. I do think the people in those trials are highly motivated Uh, to be in them. So that may produce some selection biases in the pool of people, for one. Uh, So I think it remains to be seen uh, in the the broader, longer term, but I'm very, very optimistic, I think, that they are, have major promise in treating. It's very clear that they do. Um, But I think my job is to think about why mushrooms make psilocybin. Yes. You know, what's the function for the mushroom? It might not just be one function, for example. And so... You know, when we look at that, uh, it's clear from my perspective that plants that make things like DMT, which is very much like psilocybin, that's used to make ayahuasca, um, or uh, even mescaline, which is in peyote cactus and and uh, San Pedro cacti. So those have similar effects on our, they bind to a particular subset of serotonin receptors in our brain that causes this psychedelic effect that seems to also have the therapeutic potential, okay? So, but why would a plant make something like that? Well, it isn't for us. <laughs> so, so the question becomes, who is, who is this for, if it's for anyone? You know, is it just a signaling molecule that the plants are making, or the mushrooms are making, or the toad, the Sonoran Desert toad is making, 5-MeO-DMT? The answer seems to be, so far, that the organisms that make these psychedelic molecules make them as anti-predator, anti-herbivore, you know, kind of devices. That's a function that they serve. And that hasn't been fully tested yet, but a lot of the evidence suggests that that's the case. 
So something um, that is made by a plant called reed canary grass, they make DMT, 5-MeO-DMT, and some other alkaloids that are tryptamine alkaloids uh, that are non-psychedelic, but from the same pathway. Um, sheep that graze on these plants develop something called uh, the Phalaris staggers. Phalaris is just the genus of the reed canary grass. And eventually some of them die. Mm. And so the cause of that is still a little unclear, the proximate cause, but that suggests again that these chemicals, you know, are not there for to serve our needs. And we have to think carefully about that, I think, like all the other chemicals I've been talking about. Yeah, yeah and I don't want to overemphasize that, but at the same time, I think we have to be careful for unintended consequences. Let me go to caller Jonathan next in Mountain View. Jonathan, you're on. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I'm a data science grad student at Berkeley, so go Bears. And <laughs> also a big fan of the tryptamine and phenethylamine conversation that's being had. I wanted to ask about fungi. Uh, during the pandemic, I grew an interest in uh, growing uh, uh non-psychoactive fungi such as reishi fruit, lion's mane, turkey tail, and cordyceps. And all four of these have different properties. Cordyceps is said to help with energy, reishi fruit with anxiety and anti-cancer properties, turkey tail with anti-cancer properties, and lion's mane is said to help with neurogenesis and forming new neurological connections. Um, there is some research out there, but it seems understudied. And I'm just curious about two things. One, how does nature you know, produce this? And uh, two, are any of these claims uh, maybe mm. overstated or mm. understudied? Thank Jonathan, you so much. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, so I, I do, agree, you know, I had lion's mane coffee uh, that my cousin got for me. And I was like, why is there a mushroom in my coffee? And I read the label and it did say, you know, that there are potential wellness uh, promoting effects and I think your question is a really good one. As a scientist, I would say, show me the data. I want to see the evidence, you know, not necessarily in a clinical trial right away, but maybe in lab animals, something like that. And I do think these are oversold um, a bit uh, and a lot sometimes. Uh, so I think we have to be very careful when we're evaluating evidence. We're talking with Noah Whiteman, a professor of evolutionary biology at the University of California, Berkeley. His new book is Most Delicious Poison, The Story of Nature's Toxins from Spices to Vices. You, our listeners, are asking about those toxins, telling us about your experiences with them, and uh, also telling us about uh, the things that you eat, drink, and inhale, your poisons of choice. We'll hear more about all of that after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the evolutionary origins of nature's toxins and how they intersect with our lives. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation at 866-733-6786 by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on our social channels at KQED Forum. My guest today is Noah Whiteman, an evolutionary biologist at UC Berkeley. And let me go to caller Steve in Oakland. Hi, Steve. You're on. Hi. Um, I just thought we should have, in this conversation, uh, a general take on, on my favorite plant um, and its effect physiologically, psychologically on society. I know it's a broad question, but uh, THC. Mm, all right. THC, we have a couple of other questions related to that as well from our listeners online. What would you like to say about it, Noah? Yeah, so... THC is a cannabinoid, and we have a system in our body uh, called the endocannabinoid uh, system. And, um, you know, the cannabinoids that we produce, so we produce some molecules that bind to that, and they have all kinds of effects on our the functioning of our body all over the place, from our brain to our digestive tract. And plants, uh, marijuana, um, produces uh, delta THC, which is the most um, sort of psychoactive one. And um, it binds to those receptors and produces a variety of, of effects, euphoria, um, many, many um, different uh, symptoms, I guess, of, of, of using THC. And what's interesting is that uh, a professor named Miriam Rothschild, who also studied the monarch butterfly, she asked whether cannabinoids were toxic to herbivores that, say, weren't adapted to them. And she found that both THC and CBD, so CBD is not psychoactive, but THC is, but both had these negative effects on caterpillar growth. So that tells us that at least from that perspective, the plants are making them as a chemical defense, not to, again, help us. And a of very course, recurring theme, yeah. Right. Although, of course, there's been a lot of selective breeding in, in marijuana as a crop and many other crops to enhance or change the ratios of the different kinds of cannabinoids that they produce. So we definitely have had a hand in shaping the amounts of these things. But the marijuana plants were making them long before humans were around. So that begs the question, why would they be making them? And I think that's a really uh, useful lens to view these, these uh, questions. So Steve's point that THC is his favorite plant because it does something for him <laughs> that he likes um, or that he benefits from. You know, that's similar to all the other compounds that we've been talking about, right, that uh, we tap into. Well, I want to ask you about um, how we've used these toxins that nature has created as medicines. Ron, as a follow-up related to THC, is asking if you know if marijuana can be a treatment for glaucoma Feel free to answer that, but also just curious what you consider some of the biggest successes of this in terms of utilizing nature's toxins as really effective medicines. Sure. Um, so I would say, you know, one of my favorite examples um, is Taxol, which is this um, kind of terpenoid molecule produced by uh, yew trees. So most yew trees make something like Taxol. And that was discovered um, by NIH-funded scientists from the National Cancer Institute in a survey of plants from all over. And in the bark of the Pacific yew tree, 
Taxol was discovered. And it was discovered that this was a potent poison <laughs> made by the plant that prevents cells from dividing. And it can prevent any cell from dividing, which is a double-edged sword, right? In cancer, uh, the main problem is that cells are growing out of control, the wrong cells. And so rapidly dividing cells are often a target for chemotherapies against cancer, and Taxol was groundbreaking in that way. So some of your listeners probably have been treated with Taxol and are here uh, still with us in part because of it. So that is a recent one, I think. Um, but my favorite one, and the one that I think actually has maybe a more subtle but pervasive effect, is caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> How about Madagascar periwinkle or rosy periwinkle? Oh yeah, that's a great um, that's a great example too. So this is a a plant that's a weed in many tropical places around the world, but uh, like many of these stories in Madagascar itself, that periwinkle is an endangered plant. Huh? Yeah, and this we see this very commonly with plants. They can be invasive in new places where people bring them, but in the native habitat, they're actually you know endangered. Might have small populations. And that was used by indigenous and local people for thousands of years to treat a variety of ailments wherever it ended up, both in Madagascar and then places like in South Asia, for example. And again, it was discovered in a screen by scientists independently at two different places. And there are two chemicals in it, vincristine and vinblastine, that uh, you know are probably the most important anti-leukemia, especially childhood leukemia treatments that we have and have saved countless lives uh, because they destroy white blood cells. <laughs> so this thing that sounds really bad initially is actually a cure in a different context. Uh, why is it endangered? Well, habitat destruction. Mm. Yeah. So that, that is the answer for most endangered things, I would say. You know, th habitat destruction, invasive species, and the like. How do you gauge, I, this is a big question, but climate change's effect on these potential plants, the creation of natural toxins that we can use, you know, for life-saving medications. Yeah. So the way I like to think about that is just asking first, where are most of the plants in terms of species numbers? And there, that's in the tropics, the belt between the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn. And those, of course, are some of the most endangered um, natural ecosystems on the planet. And but the, the wonderful thing about it at some level is that those lands are also controlled um, mostly by indigenous peoples. And a lot of the knowledge that we have that we use in you know, our medicine today um, was derived from uses of these plants for similar or other purposes by indigenous and local people, uh, largely from the tropics. And so um, the, the notion that uh, these chemicals that are at the highest diversity in the tropics, that is where the effort really should be placed on conserving local people's culture, their rights, indigenous rights, the lands that they have and um, own. And that is where most of these chemicals are, too. We have listeners sharing their experiences with nature's chemicals and also their questions. Denise writes, the first time I went to Hawaii, I discovered truly ripe pineapples. I ate it voraciously and spent time sunbathing. I ended up with horrible burns around my mouth. Carol writes, I was recently given a package of raw ginkgo nuts to be used in rice porridge, fresh soy milk, and soups. However, after reading about them, I learned that they're toxic in larger quantities. Eating 10 nuts or more can apparently cause nausea, vomiting, and convulsions. Can you speak to this? 
Yeah, so some of the chemicals that are in ginkgo, I'll just take that one, um, actually bind to something um, in our nerve cells, a receptor called the GABA receptor. This is the same receptor that ethanol is thought to bind to and sort of put us to sleep. This is the same receptor that Ambien binds to. And some of your listeners probably use Ambien. And it binds to a slightly different place in the receptor, but the effects are maybe can be the same. They, they either turn that receptor on more than it should be, or they turn it off more than it should be. And so if it's turned on more than it should be, it's the inhibitory neurons that those are in. And so you can see why they might result in severe symptoms. And that is both a medicine, the ginkgo um, terpenes that uh, your listener, and alkaloids that your listener is talking about. Um, they can be both a medicine and a toxin. Well, Daniel writes, I once went on a tomato binge and developed a horrible itch I couldn't resolve. Found out I'm sensitive to alkaloids. Does that count for being poisoned by nature? Well, I would challenge your listener to say, well, alkaloids are a very broad category, and they probably consume some today, like caffeine. That's an alkaloid. So what I would say is maybe your listener is sensitive to solanaceae alkaloids, mm. which could very well be the case. And that's a subset of things that the, the plants in the tomato family produce. Yeah. But I think he raises an interesting question here because kind of anything in enough of a dose can become harmful, can become poisonous, even water, for example. So how do you define a nature's toxin or poison? How do you put boundaries on that? Yeah, well, and that was sort of a central thing I grappled with in the book is 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 asking, you know, what is what is this about, really? And from my perspective, um, it needs to be a chemical that the plant has evolved the ability to produce that provides a, a benefit to it in nature, um, and that usually means it's manipulating another organism's behavior, you know, either repelling it or attracting it. And in the case of poison, that suggests poisoner. So there's like an intent there. And of course, in evolution, there's no intent, right? There's no foretelling. Uh, evolution does not do that. It can't do that. Um, but it seems like it is. <laughs> and that is because it's worked in the past, right? And so then that gets favored and spreads. So for me, a poison or a toxin that I'm talking about that that has evolved, you know, the ability to be produced by another organism, um, that those things... Um, I would say, hurt the ability of a cell to function. You know, that's the basic level. But there is this benefit to the bearers that yeah. produce it. Whereas, for example, you know, oxygen is very damaging at high concentrations, right? We wouldn't think of that as a, as a toxin, but it can be, just as you said. But the organisms that make oxygen, which are photosynthetic organisms like plants, you know, they're not making oxygen to harm us, <laughs> right? That's not the, you know, evolutionary function of, of the production of oxygen for plants. Whereas caffeine, it very clearly is. Well, Craig writes, I have been using the allelo chemicals in the straw of plants to suppress and kill weed seeds in the soil and to be able to replace the weeds with wildflowers. Just place wheat straw or alfalfa straw on the weeds and add water to make the allelo chemical tea. Paul is also sharing his poison of choice. Penicillin may have had a greater effect on society than any other plant, fungal, or mold-derived substance. We're talking about the poisons and toxins that populate our earth and their evolutionary origins and how we have come to interact with them and even rely on them with Noah Whiteman. His book is Most Delicious Poison, The Story of Nature's Toxin. He's an evolutionary biologist and professor of integrative biology and molecular and cell biology at UC Berkeley. And you listeners are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to caller John in Grass Valley. Hi, John. You're on. 
Hello, hello, doctor. Um, yeah, I want to ask if you're familiar with a plant which is which I've been told is a nightshade. I'm sorry, I don't know the botanical name, but it is a um, uh, it's used in uh, certain cultures, cuisine. Sort of, it's it's kind of a um, a boutique uh, food ingredient which is called blackberry, but it's not most definitely not like the blackberries that you get at Safeway. Uh, it's it's a small shiny berry that's probably about an eighth of an inch in diameter, and um, it's and and when when it's immature, it's green, and then later in its life, it's turned it's turned purple or or dark purple, almost black. Um, are you familiar with a plant like that? Well, the only one I'm familiar with is actually called deadly nightshade, which sounds very much <laughs> like that and has a fruit development and coloration that's very similar. And uh, people have died from eating deadly nightshade. So what I would say is if you're interested in that plant, you should be very careful if you're foraging for it. And it's a plant that's from um, Europe and Asia, but has been introduced into North America and it's weedy. It'll grow on the sidewalk here in San Francisco. I've seen it. So the plant you're describing is very similar to that. And it may well be, I have not heard of that blackberry um, nightshade. It, it could be that there's a food plant like it, too, but I'm just not aware of it. Um, so please be careful. Mm, John, thanks. Megan writes, can different processes like fermentation or heating bring out or heighten toxins? For example, I'm allergic to walnuts. I'm not allergic to walnut wood furniture. But I once had a serious and strange allergic reaction to wine, which it turned out had been aged in walnut casks. Yes, well, I have that same allergy. And the tannins that I'm so glad that uh, your listener brought this up. The tannins that are present in the wood of oak barrels, um, oaks produce a lot of tannins, um, including um, sometimes oaks produce the galls that uh, gall wasps make. The sort of plant responds to the attack by the wasp by producing this oak apple that was used to make ink for probably a thousand years in Europe and then eventually North America. But the tannins um, that the oak produces do leach into the wine, which is why some people love them. They provide that puckering sensation. They bind to salivary proteins in our mouths um, that prevents them from getting into our gut, but it, it also can be an, an allergy-inducing molecule. We've talked a lot about the, the toxins that exist in plants, but you also explain that humans produce poisons. How does that work? Yeah, I would say this is a little bit more controversial. Um, part of the reason is it seems like we produce them in very small quantities if we produce them. and But the evidence in the peer-reviewed literature suggests that we do make, uh, and it doesn't seem like our microbes make these for us necessarily, but we make something called uh, salicylic acid, uh, which is in this group of chemicals called salicylates. And uh, all of your listeners have taken some salicylates before in the form of aspirin, which is acetyl salicylic acid. And... Those salicylates are produced by every plant as a hormone. Things like willows produce a lot of them, which is where eventually aspirin was inspired by those salicylates. So that's one that we seem to make. Um, another one, this is really amazing. There's evidence that we make small quantities of morphine and in our brains at very low levels. And these studies have been done in mice and in human cell lines. 
and, have been, and these studies have been published in the peer-reviewed literature. So there's another example. There's another um, set of chemicals called cardiotonic steroids, and it seems that our bodies make chemicals that have the same effect, if not those, in small quantities. Those are the things that are in milkweeds and foxgloves that I mentioned that have also been used to treat arrhythmias like digoxin and digitoxin from foxglove. Well, we have evolved, you say, frequently, and even in this conversation, but also frequently in the book, separately, independently of these poisons. But humans must have impacted the evolution of poisons as well, right? We're just so impactful (laughs) as a species. Yeah, that's right. So if you think about just the coffee plant and where that is grown, it is grown, I think, in every country around the equator. And it evolved, of course, in East Africa, in the Ethiopian highlands, in a you know fairly small region, there's many species in the genus Cofea, but the one that we like to use Arabica and Robusta, um, those uh, plants are grown in Hawaii. They're grown in all over Central and South America and Mexico. They're grown in Indonesia. They're grown um, in places in Africa where they're not native. They're grown in you know small oceanic islands um, on the other side of of the world from Hawaii. And so, yes, the fitness of those plants from an evolutionary perspective has been enormously enhanced. And then, as I mentioned with marijuana, we've done some artificial selection, right, on the quantities, amounts, and that sort of thing on these plants. So I think humans in our gardens, in our domesticated plants, um, have uh, played a big role in shaping, uh, you know, the prevalence of these chemicals. We just have 30 seconds left, but you talk about how humans have co-opted chemicals, right, from plants and and fungi and so on. And you say in doing so, our evolutionary and cultural trajectories have changed as a species and the fates of each of our individual lives hinge on these chemicals, for better or worse. That's a big statement. Just tell us what you mean by that. Well, I would just say to you, think about the last 500 years of human history. We can look at it through the lens of a pursuit of spices, the opium war in China, the opioid epidemic in the United States, our daily routines, our lives in the case of penicillin, our pain in the case of aspirin and morphine, and I can keep going. (laughs) The book is Most Delicious Poison, the story of nature's toxins from spices to vices. Noah Whiteman is the author. Thanks so much, Noah, for coming in. Thanks, Mina. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Caroline Smith and Jericho Reininger for producing today's segment. Thank you, listeners. As always, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.